Well, if you've been watching our channel for any length of time, it's no surprise that we like to talk about prophecy here. We love to cover uh, all kinds of things relating to last things. We love to go through the Word and see what it says about it. We love to look outside and see if what's going on around us lines up with what the Bible is talking about. And if so, it gives us a sense of where we might be in terms of the unfolding um, activities of God leading toward the return of Christ uh, to establish his kingdom, and even prior to that, the rapture of the church. Things that I hold very, very dearly, things that I find massively encouraging, and, and I'm thankful so many of you do as well. It's good for us to, to discuss these things. And in doing so, a lot of times we tend to sort of major on a very specific part of prophecy study, uh, namely some of the um, the the how things are going to work, the when things are going to come about, uh, a description, you know, looking at uh, what the Bible has to say about a lot of those particulars in that side of the discussion. But there is another element to studying prophecy that is also important for us. And I, I have a personal bent toward making sure that this part doesn't get neglected. Uh, and it has to do with the idea of living uh, in the light of Christ's return. Um, there's a sort of a phrase in my head that I find myself really just ruminating over uh, these days, and it is living on the threshold. Uh, the idea of being on the threshold is something that excites us. Uh, Jesus is coming soon, and that's something that believers throughout uh, the church age have, have been excited about and that kind of thing. Um, but sometimes the emphasis on the on the threshold part comes at the expense of the living part. And I would suggest that this is not an either-or proposition, but rather a both-and, where the idea of living on the threshold, both parts of that, the on the threshold and the living on the threshold, uh, are both equally important. It's not just that we are waiting for his coming, but that the, and that the scriptures talk about these things, but that the scriptures also encourage us to consider how we live in the days leading up to Christ's return. Now, one of the churches where this comes to the fore is uh, one of my favorite churches that Paul writes to in the New Testament. This is the church in Thessalonica. Uh, in eight chapters, uh, very brief between the two books, five chapters in the first book, three in the second, um, uh, neither one very, very long, but they sort of indicate the kinds of things that Paul spoke to them about and taught them about when he had been with them sometime earlier we read about that in Acts chapter 17, and we see that when we read that passage, that Paul only really spent about three weeks or so with this church. He was with them for three Sabbaths. Uh, so in that amount of time, uh, where I, I would presume that he not only spoke in the synagogue areas, as he often was his practice, but from different houses uh, while he was in the city, he likely was hosted by people, and people would gather there course with some secrecy because it wasn't legal to be a Christian at that time. Um, but as he would meet with people, he would teach them about the various things that he speaks about in review in these two letters when he writes them about the things he had taught them about before. Well, among the things that he taught them about, he of course established them as churches. He built leadership, presumably some level of leadership among them. Um, he helped them to grow to be healthy young churches and from all accounts, they turned out to be that. But surprisingly, one of the things that he spent apparently quite a bit of time on was the idea of last things, about Jesus coming, both in his first coming, the rapture, uh, not first coming in terms of his uh, you know, um, 
earthly ministry, but in terms of the two comings that are yet future, the second coming of Christ where he establishes his kingdom, this he talks about. But even prior to that, an earlier coming, he talks about the rapture. Uh, he talks about Jesus uh, putting down the Antichrist. He talks about the idea of, of God's wrath being uh, appointed really for those who are uh, not covered by the blood of Christ and this kind of thing. But there's so much to do with, with last things. And so we get a lot of the richness of our understanding of last things. Of course, we connect with Daniel, Revelation, all the other uh, apocalyptic writing. But we get quite a fair amount, really, from these two very brief letters. Again, it's almost kind of surprising, especially based on sort of the uh, the church's norm nowadays, where eschatology, last things, apocalyptic writing in the scripture is generally set aside because it's maybe hard to understand or maybe it divides churches because there are different perspectives on how it unfolds. Um, the early church would not have had so much problem talking about last things. Uh, the book of Revelation came later in the 90s in that compared to like the earlier writing of the Thessalonian letters or even the Corinthian letters. Um, but in those other letters, even setting aside the book of Revelation, prior to its writing, there's a tremendous amount of writing here in the scripture having to do with last things, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Paul didn't hesitate to teach them about this. This Gentile church here in Thessalonica, he shared about these things with them, so much so that they were actually concerned that maybe they were in the last days and they were somehow had misunderstood something because they expected to be gone by now. So Paul addresses those things with them. So again, we we naturally veer toward those things in these letters, but there is a surprising amount of other, of, of, of the other element of living on the threshold that Paul deals with here, and that's the living part. How do we now live in these days where we're expecting Jesus to come? Well, in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, I thought it would take just a minute uh, to go ahead and, um, and maybe speak to a couple things on this in the last days. Uh, uh, referring to the last days and how we should live. In chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, Finally, brethren, as he's closing his letter, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. And so Paul recognizes the importance of gospel ministry, teaching the word of God. This was one of the four legs on the stool in the early church, the apostles' doctrine, uh, breaking bread, uh, fellowship, and prayers. And so we read those things in Acts chapter 2, these, these legs that the stool of the Christian church ultimately rested upon. And so Paul is recognizing the importance of the word of God to run unencumbered, swiftly uh, sort of implied within the terminology, speaks of the idea that nothing is withholding it from running freely. Uh, and so the prayer is that nothing would restrain it from going forth, that, that in particular, unreasonable and wicked men would not have any impact on the outgoing of the gospel. They would not cause it uh, any delay. Uh, I found it interesting that Paul not only prays in general sense for those who are wicked and unfaithful and unreasonable men, but he actually names some people along those lines in some of his writings. Paul is very serious about the gospel. The gospel comes first. And when somebody stands in the way of it, we ought not entertain that person's blockade, but rather go around it or pray that God would help us to go through it, but that the word of God would go forth as he sends it forth to do and accomplish the purposes that he has for it. And recognizing that not all have faith and those who don't will stand in opposition to its going forth. 
But verse 3 goes on and speaks about the faithfulness of God who establishes us and guards us from the evil one, even as Jesus himself prayed. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. And rather than being taken out of the world, Jesus prays instead that we'd be protected from the evil one. He even uh, invites his followers to pray that very thing. Uh, Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there is this understanding that in in spite of the opposition that we will face, which implies that we are going to face opposition, even as Paul did, that God will be faithful to fortify us and, and establish us and keep us in such a place that we would not um, um, be stopped, that the kingdom of God would continue to go forth until the day of Christ. Uh, and, and on top of that also, he speaks here of the idea of marking those in verse 6. Um, and and uh, you know, having sort of mentioned this idea of these who are unreasonable and wicked men, in verse 6 he continues by saying, that we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. And then he goes on to speak about how Paul and those with him set an example, a positive, a right good example of what a believer looks like, those who are serious about their walk with Christ, as opposed to those who live disorderly or casually or as if it didn't matter. Um, Paul's encouragement is to not spend time with those, but to separate yourself from those who are disorderly and those who, as he goes on to say, uh, who walk not according to the traditions uh, which Paul and those with them have taught them. The traditions here are not intended to be high, lofty, liturgical things, but just practical instruction and practices that the church would live by. Uh, We have hints of what some of those things were in in the passages themselves. Uh, There are extra-biblical writings like the Didache, or the Didache as it's variously pronounced, that give some instruction on, uh, that that purports to be apostolic instruction in regard to daily living and receiving ministers as they come to town and all those kinds of things. Um, But the, the scriptures and the early church practiced a lifestyle of faithfulness to the Lord. And in the context of opposition, persecution, uh, imprisonment and even death, they live those things out. And Paul is encouraging the kind of uh, the kind of fortitude in that endeavor that requires the Lord's establishing us, but for our part requires us to be committed to it. To say, I, I don't want to be casual about my faith, but rather I want to live for Jesus regardless of the cost. That was the first century believer's mindset. Uh, it wouldn't be hard to imagine uh, to, to really spend time talking about how that tends not to be the mindset of many of us in the West because we generally don't face the kinds of things they did. Now, there are some of you watching here who do face some of those kinds of things. When you read the Bible, it seems like you're reading about your own life in some regards, you know, and, and the way some believers had to live out their faith. You are heroes of ours, by the way. Be encouraged and continue. And as Paul would later say, uh, do not grow weary in doing good, right? Just continue to press on uh, as you see that day approaching. Um, but by and large, much of the church today, uh, it doesn't require much of us to, to follow after Jesus. And so to even read what Paul is saying here begins to sound like legalism or something. It ought never be seen as legalism. We're not talking about you earning your salvation or me earning my salvation by my works, but rather living out of faith that works. You know, since I have received the grace of God, that grace not only frees me from the penalty of my sin, but it also equips me to press on and uh, in, in the work that we do for the sake of the gospel and the life that we live, shining a light of the gospel. And so 
Paul's desire here is for them, as since they are walking so strongly with the Lord, to not allow anything or anyone in their lives who are going to bring them down in that regard. Now, I'm not saying that every friend we have is going to be some, you know, torch-bearing, on-fire believer kind of thing. So, I mean, people are at various places in their walk. I obviously know that. And, and, and each one of us might find ourselves at some ebb and flow in our own walk from time to time. But the general rule of a believer is one uh, is that we live in the light of Christ's return, and that means something to us. When we live under the expectation of his coming for us, whether it be through the natural course and passing of things or whether it be through the rapture, we are looking for his coming. And that how can that not affect the way that we live today, both in terms of personal purity, priority, and all those kinds of things? Um, this is the call of God upon our lives. And that's not legalism. That's just a natural response to somebody who truly appreciates what grace has done in their lives. I am free from the penalty of what I deserve, what I totally deserve. Matter of fact, what I don't deserve is any of God's mercy. But he's given it to me. He graciously has set me free. He's washed me clean. I'm no longer on the path to destruction that I once was. Uh, my feet are now on that narrow road leading to everlasting life. And that affects the way that I think and live. That's just the natural response of a believer. As a matter of fact, just to kind of close this brief discussion uh, here in just a second, again, you'd never cover everything that the Bible says about living in, uh, on the threshold, really on, um, uh, you know, in, in just a few minutes. Um, that would be an ongoing study in itself. But let me just sort of sum it up with what Paul had to say. Um, in verse 5. I think it's a wonderful sort of wedged right there in the middle of this whole discussion. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, sentiment that he shares here. As he says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. This is the direction that God is calling us. This is the direction that Jesus laid a path toward as the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, this is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives as he sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. He is bringing us into a deeper love relationship with Jesus every day. Uh, one of my favorite passages uh, from Paul is actually in uh, Philippians chapter 3, where Paul, and you can feel the ache in his voice, where he desires to know Christ whether it's through the power of his resurrection or whether it's through being conformed to his death, I want it, is essentially what Paul is saying. He reaches, he strives toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He is longing to know him, longing to serve him, longing to be given fully over to him in every facet of his life. Um, you know, Part of that is born of the fact that Paul had an intimate knowledge of his own position and self-righteousness, and not position, but condition and self-righteousness prior to that Damascus Road experience in the book of Acts. Paul recognizes the place where he thought he was so right because of his activities, but he was so wrong because of his not love for Jesus, but resistance to and even hatred for Jesus. And in that context, the grace that Christ brings him completely frees him from what he once was to be what God has called him to be. And his desire is just to know Jesus even better. And so may the, may the Lord ultimately direct your hearts into the love of God. What could be more beautiful, rich, and meaningful than to be camped out, resting deeply in the love of God? This is Paul's prayer for these believers. And not only that, 
but also into the patience of Christ. Now the word patience there, that hupomones, the idea of the uh, patience uh, suffering, the long-suffering patient, the patient endurance uh, that we often associate with this word is certainly here, but it also carries with it the idea of someone who is loyal. It speaks of somebody who continues to press on rather than turning off the path after something else. Rather, he presses into this path. He is uh, consistently loyally pressing forward in this lane and not going somewhere else. And notice it says the patience of Christ. Not just for Christ. That is the expression. This comes as a result of that commitment. But it is ultimately the kind of patience that Christ himself, or the patient endurance that Christ himself ultimately lived out and expressed in serving, walking with the will of God because of his love relationship with the Father, that same desire uh, is something that Paul prays for us. That we would be lovingly committed in, in, in a deep love relationship with God that therefore finds expression in loyalty to him. Um, it's very much like a marriage is supposed to be. In, in saying I do to your spouse, you say I don't to everything else. Nothing gets in and creeps into that. Nothing gets to have a place that is special in that relationship like the one you're, that you're married to, the one that is your own beloved. And this is the kind of beautiful mindset that a believer can have. It's not just about, I need to do this and this and this. That should never even have to enter the mind of a believer. I mean, I, I know that sounds crazy, but it, it shouldn't have to be that. It shouldn't be a matter of walking with Jesus because I, I'm supposed to and the Bible says so and this is what Christians are supposed to do. I don't really want to do it because I want to do other stuff. But this is if I'm going to be a believer, I guess I have to do this. That kind of thinking should have no place in the life of a believer. If we really understand grace, if we understand what we really deserve and what God has given us instead, how could we ever respond to somebody like that? I mean, how could we truly, how could we naturally find in ourselves a response of, okay, I guess I'll do it because you want me to. I mean, after all, you did save me from hell and sin and all these things. So I guess I'll look, wow, like you're probably not saved if that's how you think. Uh, not to be too blunt about it, but if if that's all your your, your religion is, there's something massive missing there. Um, Jesus invites us to know him, to love him, to walk with him as a privilege, as a blessing, as a rich endeavor that is rife with experience with him, not as a required responsibility and duty so I don't lose something, but rather something to experience and enjoy because of all that I have gained in that relationship, not just the stuff that comes, Believe it or not, not even because uh, because of heaven per se. Heaven's only heaven because God's there. Uh, heaven becomes the most beautiful place to ever be because that's where the Lord is. That's where we'll see him face to face. And the excitement of that meeting should be awe-inspiring and breathtaking. The thought of seeing him face to face and recognizing how desperately we do not deserve to be there, but yet we can be. He's invited us. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience, the patient endurance, the loyal, loving relationship of Christ as we live, underscore, on the threshold, underscore. Father, help us to take on that heart. Help us as we consider 
the soon coming of Christ, the soon coming for him to snatch away his bride, his beloved, uh, she who he has made pure and clean and given a white garment, she who will not face what she deserves for what she actually is, but rather will receive richly for what he has made her. Oh God, how we look forward to the day we get to see you and be with you. We pray that the love and excitement, anticipation of that glorious, beautiful, precious day would flood our hearts even today, that we would not be content to have a relationship that is just a matter of getting things done because I gotta do them, but rather instead to can just to avail ourselves that we might experience the love of God in Christ Jesus, that we might experience the richness of the grace that we've received, unmerited, undeserved, that we might bask in the freedom from the penalty that we deserve and instead the freedom to experience and know you and to walk with you. Father, we just pray that every day of our lives would be laid before you toward this end, that, Father, we would freely receive that which you have shockingly, in some ways inexplicably, freely given to us. Thank you, Lord, for this breathtaking gift, for this eternity-altering grace, for the power that comes from grace to even change us now and to open doors of relationship with you that were uh, hitherto closed and had no opportunity of being opened from this side of the doorway. But thank you, Lord, that you opened the door, you tore the veil, you made the way. This is all you. This is all your grace. So, Father, help us to simply step aside and give you the place in our lives that you so richly deserve and desire that we might know you, with whom we have to do, that we might know you, the one who loved us and set us free, that we might dwell with you. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are. And thank you for all that you will do in answering this prayer and drawing us close to yourself in these days in which we're living. Fortify us, establish us, and give us the sense of priority in these days that will free us to walk with you without encumbrance, that will help us to stand against the wiles of the wicked one, that will give us uh, the sense of what we have in Christ that will completely cause us to set aside that which the world seeks to shove in our face in order to undermine what we have in Christ. Father, help our eyes to see clearly that which is from you and help us to turn away from that which is not. Thank you, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and bless you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.